This is what is Judaism. But this time we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to take a short break from our regularly scheduled curriculum because the, the fact is that it is heavy. There's, it's very dense, and there are a lot of questions that build up over time. And periodically, we're going to have to take a break, do an interlude episode, and address some questions that Joe is coming up with. Yeah, Joe, you want to explain a little bit more? Yeah. Uh, thank you. Thank you for, for letting me do this. I'm going to try to make these questions as articulate as possible. But basically, none of these questions that have popped into my mind over the last few weeks have been things that were directly related to stuff that we covered as we covered it. It's more related to the overarching themes that we're talking about or the ways in which things connect together. Hmm. So we have a lot of individual components that now that we have this body of work, if I can, if I can call it that. That's with, accurate. With three episodes down, um, I, I go back and I look at it and I'm starting to get an idea of the bigger picture. And it's that bigger picture that makes room for, for these other questions. So, Right. So you're saying that, especially for someone who has never learned this material before at all, you're approaching Judaism for the very first time. Let's say you haven't had any education whatsoever. Jumping straight into all of this is going to, there's, there are going to be holes. We need to address some of the bigger picture questions, and, uh, and that's what you've got, right? I think so. Okay, let's hear it. All right, so the first question that's kind of been building in my mind is, as we started this series, we start with the Ramchal coming out and just saying, the purpose of creation is so that God could bestow goodness upon that creation. That seems to be the thesis uh, of that, that we're building all sorts of other things off of. So that's the first kind of if statement. Maybe it's a hypothesis. And all the other things that we've learned, or many of the other things, I don't want to say all, many of the other things that we learned, especially in that first chapter, built off of that first statement. Right. So, and, he, and he doesn't state it as a hypothesis. He just states it patently as fact. Right, exactly. And so this is... That leads to my first question, which is, does he reference either where that is explained in some of the more foundational Jewish Jewish texts? Or I mean, so what we have is we're learning from the Ramchal, who in the 18th century seems to be expounding on these ideas that, I guess, are they based in something else? Let's assume that we've never heard of the Torah. Uh, what what or where are are these ideas based in are you um, asking is he making it up well it's it's not is he making it up but rather how does he um do, does he cite where he where he begins to derive these because i doubt much of this is explicitly stated in the torah i i i genuinely don't know um, but right it's not so it, so he's deriving these new concepts, and the question is, what's the, what's the seed that those yeah, grew well, out of? It depends what you mean by the Torah. Uh, in the written Torah, the, what people would recognize as the Torah outside of Orthodox Judaism, if you would you know, say the Torah, anyone that would even know what that means would probably think uh, the, you know, quote-unquote, the Old Testament, uh, which we call Tanakh, 
which is an acronym for Torah, Nevi'im, and Ksuvim, which means Torah is the five books of Moses, mm. the Pentateuch. And Nevi'im stands for prophets, and Ksuvim stands for writings, or means writings. Okay, so when you refer to prophets, that's what you're talking about, is that middle book, or that middle section of the Tanakh. Right. Mm-hmm. And the writings were also written, it's not that, uh, it's not to imply that there was no element of prophecy whatsoever. It was written with kind of a downgraded version of prophecy called Ruach HaKodesh. But all of this is is too much to get into right, right now. The point is that the the written Torah does not mention a lot of this explicitly, especially the five books of Moses, which everything is predicated on. And that, and that was the most direct tradition that we had when God gave the Torah to Moses on Mount Sinai. Uh, and he spent the rest of their time in the wilderness writing it down and composing these five books. There is hardly anything that's overtly spiritual mm. in the Torah. Um, and there's an interesting reason for that, actually, which the Maral, great Kabbalist, explained that the Torah itself is the expression of its own content. Let me explain what that means. So right, any, anything that's, that is superficial will be written superficially. And information which is deep and hidden will be deep and hidden as it appears in the text, right? So all of these secrets, these mysticism principles that are in Judaism that you can't find just looking at the text, they mm. are there but in code. And they, they are hidden because the material itself is hidden. It's also written in a hidden way. So anything that you see overtly in the text is only what's going to be superficial, and therefore none of the content is going to be uh, anything beyond what are we obligated to do in a physical realm. Okay. Now, having said that, where do we get the rest of our tradition? So there, there's another portion of the Torah called the Oral Torah. That our tradition is that Moses received not only this written text from God and Mount Sinai, but simultaneously received the what we call the oral tradition, Torah Shabbat Peh, which is sort of the unlocked version of the Torah. If I could give a, a crude analogy, it's kind of like if you would have a computer program mm -hmm. and you, there are two ways to analyze the program, to look at the program. You could look at the code, not only the source code that a programmer wrote, but what that source code gets translated into by the computer in terms of machine code and binary. Mm -hmm. If you would look at that, that's the real code that the machine is interpreting. Yeah. That's like the written Torah. So if you would look at that, all you see is zeros and ones. It's meaningless to you. You would have the amount of understanding you would have to have of that machine language is inconceivable to practically understand what this program is doing. So that would be like the written Torah, uh, it's just code. And trying to decipher that without outside knowledge would be impossible. Practically impossible. The miracle is that it also appears superficially as a narrative. And that, that layer We're is talking about also the Torah. true. The Torah, the written Torah. Right? That superficial layer is also true. But one should not think that that's all it is. It's not a history book. It's not a narrative. It's comprised of combinations of divine names that's, uh, that's code for the secrets of all spirituality and creation. The unlocked version of that, if you could instead put away the machine code in the analogy, right, and open the program, and you can actually see how the program operates, mm. or 
I guess maybe the program is is reality, right? As it's running. Yeah. In in the analogy, but if you could look at let's say the source code, the JavaScript, or uh, you know whatever it is, and see how it's structured and understand uh, how it's encoded, that's the oral Torah. It's an unpacked version if you have the keys, and so that was left away as a tradition that was meant to remain purely uh, through oral tradition from master to disciple. And some of it is meant to be exposed to the entire nation of the Jewish people, like the practical laws that we need to know, uh, and some elements of basic philosophy that we need to believe in and we need to know in order to, to operate and accomplish our goals. And some of it is the, the hidden mystical deeper knowledge, and that was restricted to very select individuals that were capable of receiving that information, and not just information, receiving that, having that connection to that level of truth, uh, a person needed to not only be intellectually capable of understanding it, but needs to purify themselves to a degree that they can become a vessel for such. Okay. So that's not just what you get if you go spend a year at yeshiva. That is not like, <laughs> right. And if anyone tells you that they, that they have it, they certainly don't. Okay. So in, in the analogy, we have an expert explaining to us, uh, not just how the source code works, but actually how the program operates. And that is the analogy for the relationship between the oral Torah and the written Torah. The oral Torah having been passed down orally all this time? Sort of. Uh, some of it, yes. And there was a certain point in history where a large portion of it was codified. That happened around the 3rd century. And it's called the Mishnah, where Rabbi Yehud Hanasi, who sometimes in English we call him Judah the Prince. Judah the Prince. Right. He was the leader of the Jewish people in his time. And there was a tremendous amount of oppression from the Roman government against the Jewish people. And they were not just oppressing the people, but trying to eliminate Judaism mm -hmm. as a religion. And therefore, they were tracking down scholars, rabbis, these masters, and just executing them for the crime of teaching Torah. And... Because of this, the entire integrity of the oral Torah was at stake because if we lose the people that are carrying the tradition, then the whole Torah becomes lost. So ideally, the oral Torah was meant to be kept strictly oral, just passed down from master to student uh, in, a, in a very organic way. But there came a point where the danger of losing it altogether became greater than mm. the danger of writing it down. And so... Rabbi Yehuda Nasi made the executive decision. In fact, he derived he derived this from a principle in the Torah that says that there is a time to defile the Torah for your for your sake. So to break the Torah's own rules in order to preserve it. Wow. Okay. And so, he, based on that principle, he gave himself the license to codify what we call the Mishnah. Mishnah in Hebrew means teaching. The way most of the oral Torah was transmitted to the masses of the Jewish people at the time was there were very concise and terse teachings that were just basically law, cold, hard law. This is what you do. This is what you don't do. This is okay. This is not okay. Uh, this is valid. This is invalid regarding all elements of life and, uh, and Jewish law, which, which is all encompassing. And a, the average Jewish child was expected to memorize all of them. Mm. 
many of them weren't able to do that and didn't keep up with their learning. Fine. The ones that were and were very serious about it ended up becoming scholars. But this education was given to every Jewish child, at least ideally. And I mean, can you imagine? I mean, there were thousands and thousands of these teachings, and you were expected to memorize all of them. Well, it's it's kind of amazing. Uh, I'm I am still stuck, not stuck, but uh, mulling over this concept that you have basically a a written text that is unchanged from the time it was originally written, and then living people to pass down how to actually decipher this text. Can, can you imagine how much simpler uh, something even as new as the Constitution would be to, if, to if understand? A, right, if we had a tradition that was handed down. <laughs> right, right. Right. And so, you know, on, to that point, skeptics will cast doubt on the legitimacy of the oral Torah because it was oral. Right for for so many generations, so people like to point to the telephone game of how easily information can become distorted just from a few transmissions mm. one to the next. So how can we really be sure? So well, it, can I can I jump in? Sure. Real quick? It's the telephone game. Seems it's like it seems like something that's designed specifically to produce that result. Like you're supposed to whisper to the person next to you, and the next people aren't supposed to be able to hear what you're saying, which is the exact opposite of what the actual goal of the game is, or the stated goal of the game, which is to pass the message around a room. Right. Uh, so you're intentionally building in ways to make the communication more difficult, which doesn't seem like it would have to be necessary if you were really trying to pass something down. Exactly. And some of those elements of what makes that game difficult is, like you said, first of all, that uh, you say it in a very you know, in a low whisper that's barely audible, so it's difficult to even hear what's being transmitted. And second of all, there's only one person in each link. Yeah. Right? So it's the the entire chain depends on one person for each transmission. If that one person gets it wrong or the person who's hearing it hears it wrong, the whole thing is, is done. So what was happening with the Jewish people is this education, as I just said, was not only relegated to the elite scholar class. This education was expected to be passed on to every single Jewish person. And so you have an entire generation of children that are learning the exact same material and you have overlapping generations. And add in the fact that maintaining the integrity of the Torah was more important historically has been more important to the Jewish people than our very lives. There is no way that a master of Torah would have allowed his disciples to go forth and start teaching without an absolute assurance that he had a very clear understanding of what he had been given in the first place. Mm. And so, and, and we see that because we, we have texts from all over the world and they're almost identical in terms of what was handed down. Okay, so now that we have that kind of basis for what these foundational teachings were, the written Torah and the oral Torah, mm -hmm. do we have in there somewhere that the Ramchal references as the, the seed that he used to grow this body of knowledge that we're learning from now? Right. So, so as I alluded to earlier, there is a section of the oral Torah that was relegated to an elite class, and that's what we call Kabbalah. 
any of our listeners have heard this term before, this element of mysticism within Jewish tradition, Kabbalah, Kabbalah, literally means reception. Uh, so the, the Ramchal himself calls it Chachmas Ha'emes, the, the wisdom of truth. And this is the highest level of understanding of reality and, uh, and the, the deeper philosophies. You know, my, my dad, when I told him that I was learning about Judaism as an adult, and my dad's an Israeli man, and he was more religious growing up and fell away from it as an adult. And I've never known him as a particularly religious guy, but he was very happy to hear that I was learning about Judaism. But the first thing that he told me was, don't jump straight into Kabbalah. Kabbalah is like having dessert, and you have to have dinner first. Yeah, he's not wrong. But he's there. You know, there are different um, there are different branches of topics within Kabbalah, and what most people think of when they think of Kabbalah is uh, all of these esoteric systems for how the higher realms are constructed and how energies pass from one level to the next, and um, you know all these things. So to t- get involved with that, and and also that that's the intellectual study of it. There are other branches of Kabbalah that are more practical, like these meditative combining divine names of letters within your head and meditating on these, on these names and ascending and transcending through different realms, that kind of stuff that we stay away from, right? That we need to have dinner first, Mm -hmm. fill our, the the way the the Jewish sages say it is you need to fill your stomach with bread before you can drink the wine. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. So what we're dealing with here is technically Kabbalah, what the Ramchal is uh, presenting to us, which is getting back to answering your question. But one of the things that makes the Ramchal so great was his ability to organize information that is would otherwise be inaccessible to the masses and boil it down and present it in a way that we can it's tangible that we can, you know, grab onto it and really have a fundamental understanding of what we're doing in life. And so the sources that he is coming from, we can assume. So to answer your question, the simple answer to your question is no, he doesn't provide overtly sources to the information that uh, that he's coming from. But it's quite obvious if you're familiar with some of the Kabbalistic texts, some of the main ones that came from the the Ari HaKadosh and his student Rechem Vital, it's clear where he was coming from with a lot of it, but he doesn't state, uh, he doesn't, you know, cite, see this book and, and that chapter, because even if he would, it would just be confusing. It wouldn't be helpful. And so we just trust his authority that he is compiling the information in a, uh, in an accessible way. And, and it's valid. But he's not, he's not making stuff up. Right? He's certainly not making stuff up. And if you want to, if, if you want, if you choose to not take him at his word, which is fine, we encourage that in Judaism, but you have to go to, you know, to sources further back, mm-hmm. then by all means, study as much as you can. And once you've gained the proper tools, look at the sources that he came from, and that will give you a much greater view of, of, of all this. But until then, we'll assume that he is a master of this information, that he's, he's accessing all the things that we would not have access to and presenting it to us. Great. So, all right. I'm willing to accept that these are absolutely based somewhere 
in and I recognize that there's a lot of knowledge uh, in I've seen the shelves full of books just just in your home um, of, of all these Jewish texts and I think a lot of that is the Mishnah so I'm not going to pick your brain and have you explain every little every little bit to me right now um, one of the things that has so thoroughly enchanted me about my journey into Judaism thus far has been that every time I think I've encountered something where I just say, well, that doesn't seem right, or, you know, that doesn't seem like it could work. The error has been mine every single time. There have been so many incredible intellectuals that have thought about this for literally thousands of years that if something seems on its surface difficult to swallow, it's because I'm only seeing the surface and there's probably a lot more information that I just don't have. So that's been my approach when, when I hear something that to me is, let's say it, it it diverges from my experience with reality. For example, the reference of resurrection. We're, we're talking about literal resurrection. And I, so I've approached the Torah, or I did previously approach the Torah, as something with a lot of real good parables in it, you know? Mm. Um, something where you can gain a lot of wisdom from what was written down because, man, the people, the first people to write things down created this masterpiece that has survived this long. Uh, there must be some good stuff in there. Right, there's something to it, but to take it at its face and to say that it's liter literally true would be absurd. Well, and that that's kind of where some of the, the I, I would say, skepticism comes into place. Again, you know, we've talked about this before where I, I don't have even the slightest bit of doubt that there is a God who created us for a purpose and that God is good. The rest are things where I'm, I'm learning. I'm trying to learn how to approach some of these things that, you know, with, with a scientific education just seem a little bit more difficult. Sure. Yeah. I, I think I get what you're saying. It, it, it's like this. You have an engineering background, mm. right? I don't. So let's say you're working on a problem and I'm looking at your work and this doesn't make sense at all. And I, <laughs> and I, I say, hey, I think you made a mistake here, Joe. <laughs> and I would suggest something else that seems to you to be ridiculous. Mm -hmm. I mean, how would you respond to that? I would, I would probably... Um, I like to think that I would respond in a a kind of teaching way maybe i'd ask you some <laughs> questions and say well explain to me how this how right. this might work in reality um i the, the I assumption think, is that i'm an idiot right, right? I, in reality i think i would probably treat you as such as well at that point now what if that same suggestion that appeared so absurd to you didn't come from me but rather it came from a professor at caltech I would take a little bit more time to check my work. Exactly, right? 
this person, he's clearly not a fool. The fact that this appears absurd to you, in the one instance where it came from me, you immediately dismiss it. Mm. What I said does not make sense. You made that judgment call. And yet, if the same suggestion would come from someone of a higher authority, and it still doesn't make sense to you, so you wouldn't immediately dismiss it. You don't say this doesn't make sense. You might say this doesn't make sense to me. This doesn't add up. Maybe there's something more to it. And so when we come to the Torah, and we inevitably have this experience where the Torah will be teaching us something, um, let's say it's a, a moral lesson that we find objectionable, or it's some in your example, some fantastic, miraculous experience that occurred and, and you know, we see that as absurd. We have two options. We can either dismiss it as being uh, either untrue or, you know, like you said, maybe just a parable. Mm-hmm. Or the alternative is, as you mentioned, maybe this doesn't make sense to me, but that's a fault in me. That's because, you know, a lack of my understanding. So is that your general philosophy when approaching new things? Because I know you began your journey. Uh, I think you said you were around 20 years old. Something like that. Um, and so you're already a, a pretty fully formed human at that point. Um, I would imagine you encountered a lot of things that seemed to diverge from what you viewed as reality. Yes, but like you, I had seen and I had been exposed to enough that sparked my interest. It was many, many, many months studying full-time in Israel before I fully accepted, you know, okay, this is it. This is true. This is my life now. Hmm. Um, but, you know, kind of where you're coming from, where I've seen enough that I couldn't just dismiss it. Right. That, I, that's it, exactly where I'm at. It warranted investigation. Absolutely. So that's that's really what it comes down to is – once you've legitimized and verified, validated the Torah, and you say, okay, this, this is from God, anything that you then encounter that challenges your understanding will just by default, you'll take the approach of, okay, I don't get this, but let me figure out how it's true. I need to check my work. Right. So that that's the general approach and the requirement is and this requires a humility and b uh faith right that this is true it it is difficult to prove to someone or to try to convince someone that doesn't already believe in the validity of the torah that uh that these events truly occurred or uh, you know really anything that doesn't make sense to them because they're always going to fall back on maybe i'm right and and this is wrong yeah there's uh (laughs) <laughs> uh, people who know me will know that I kind of routinely invoke uh, relativity theory in all sorts of analogies because uh, I think it's I think it's beautiful. I think it's wonderful. Yeah, it's a big hit at parties about. I, oh yeah, everyone everyone loves it. I'm off in the corner just explaining this to <laughs> uh, so to the lamp. Right, exactly. Um, but. I, it's not. It's not because I understand relativity theory so well. It's it's pretty complex stuff. But I've I've read a fair bit about Einstein, and I had a physics professor who was willing to humor me with all my questions, and I'd go to his office hours, and he would try to explain this stuff to me. Um, and the history of it is fascinating. I mean, Einstein, you know, now he's a household name for a reason. He 
fundamentally altered how we perceived reality. Uh, and and I, I mean, that is absolutely not overstated. Uh, the idea that, that you are an object, you are a four-dimensional object moving through space-time at the speed of light constantly. You cannot alter that. That was his hypothesis. And to this day, it has failed to be disproven. There's a million different ways that science has tried to disprove it. That's the process of doing science. But eventually, and this was fortunately within Einstein's lifetime, it was accepted as theory. And, you know, it's never going to be fact, quote unquote, because science doesn't prove things. Proof is relegated to mathematics and the courtroom, and that's it. Uh, but it was elevated to the realm of theory where we accept now that the physical world is three dimensions that you and I can walk through and one dimension that we have absolutely no control over but that we are in fact moving through. So that to me seems like an example of all the ways in which our perception, when, when we rely on our perception, if you'd asked someone in 1915, they would have said unequivocally, there's three physical dimensions. That's it. Time is some other concept. And now you, you can get a college, I mean, just an undergraduate degree and gain enough of an understanding of how, no, we have a ton of evidence to suggest that that's not the case. Um, so, so we always have to be open to a paradigm shift. Right. So, okay, I think that we have a way to go forward with skepticism that still allows us to continue learning and hopefully eventually come to the right conclusions. Right. So I should point out that within the Jewish framework, within Jewish philosophy, skepticism is encouraged with an asterisk. I mean, to challenge the basic principles, that you can't do because that would undermine the integrity of everything. It would undermine your whole principle of being able to f learn new things about it because mm -hmm. if you could challenge the fundamental principles, so then who says that any of it's true in the first place and therefore you'll just drop it. So there is a certain amount of faith that is required. The skepticism that's encouraged is kind of like a, a false skepticism that assume for the sake of argument that it's not true so that you can challenge it in, for the for the express purpose of understanding it on a deeper level. Right. Okay. I I, th I think that's totally fair. We are we are actually um, and this this doesn't exactly fit the scientific method, but not everything has to. Um, science and expressly religion, they're not necessarily at odds with each other, but they just are dealing with different things. You can't approach both of them with the same mindset. So I understand if we're, if we're looking for, for ways to understand how this might be true, that's cool. I think that makes a lot of sense. Okay. So now having said that, why don't you give a few examples of things that you found troublesome? Um, Troublesome might not be, might not be the best word. Uh, the very first thing that I found troublesome was actually outside of this course. I, I'm using the word troublesome, um, but it was just the first thing that I kind of uh, was surprised at. 
Uh, and that was the idea that the Torah was not written by Moses. It was penned by Moses and written by God. That gave me pause. And the more I've learned, and, you know, forgive me, I've, I've had to learn some things outside of the podcast as well. I forgive you. Uh, all right. Uh, the, the more I've learned, the more that seems not just reasonable, but true. And with that as a foundation, most of the other stuff can at some point fit into there. Part of the difficulty, and this leads to the third question, actually. So we have this idea that everyone's heard, which is, you know, two Jews, three opinions. So we recognize that there is room within Judaism to disagree, and there are certainly branches. I'm not going to name any specifically, but, you know, like how I was raised in what I consider diet Judaism. Uh, and it's not really a, a full philosophy. But so there's disagreement all over the place. At what point is it disagreements in interpretation within Judaism? And how do you know at, at which point you have diverged outside of Judaism? Okay, that's a fair question. Because there, you're right. There is a concept called machlokas, dispute, disagreement um, among the sages. And this is a very, it's a difficult concept to, to grasp. And there there are many levels of it. It might be a little bit beyond our scope for, for right now. I think this one question is worthy of an entire episode mm. that maybe we can do at a, at a different time. In a nutshell, the basic fundamental principles are never challenged. So when you do find a dispute among these legitimate sources, it's not going to be about fundamental beliefs. Those are, those are uniform. Uh, for the most part. And if there is a dispute about them, it's going to be some detail which the main point is the same and it's a slight shift in perspective. Mm -hmm. There are many other kinds of disputes. And like I said, it's worthy of a whole other podcast. I think we'll save it for that time. Okay. All right. That's fair. I do want to come back to something else that you said, though, because you were, you were touching on events that are, let's say, supernatural. Yeah. Are we supposed to just accept that? Is it meant to be literal? Was this part of your question? It, it was at some point. I would I would love to go into this. So please. So this this is a this is also a complicated point because the answer is sometimes it's meant to be taken literally and sometimes it's not. Let's take what's in the written Torah, for mm, example. Yeah. One of the big things that a lot of people have trouble with is the whole Genesis narrative. Mm. So let's. Put that on the side for just one second, and we'll come back to it. I was going to ask if we could come back to it because yeah. of course we will. Yeah, no, that, that's the point. I just I want to set up some other examples so that I can come back to the Genesis narrative. Okay. This what I'm about to say comes from Nachmanides, the Ramban, who is a 12th century Kabbalist, universally accepted among the Jewish people as a master. So he said the following: We have a general axiom in the Torah which we've mentioned previously in this podcast, that what appears on the surface level of the Torah is true, but there are so many deeper levels that are also hinting at other things. In order to access those deeper levels, you need a mastery of wisdom and understanding and have the keys to decipher it. 
each level is absolutely true. So, for example, if the Torah says that Moses ascended the mountain, it means all sorts of deep things. Moses was what a mountain represents conceptually and spiritually in his ascension of it. It is also meant to be a parable. There are all these other hidden deep meanings. And yet it also literally means that he walked up a mountain. The Mm. Torah won't say something that's not true. Even if it's superficial, it's at least superficially true as well. Every layer has to be true. He says that when it comes to the Genesis narrative, the whole thing's flipped backwards. I don't know why, but that's the way it is. Meaning that everything that appears superficially in the narrative is actually the deepest, most conceptual meaning of what was really happening. Hmm. So that immediately makes Genesis. Sorry, I I don't please. Right. It changed. It changes a lot. Right. Everything that's there is true, but not in a physical, literal way that we would envision it Hmm. to know what literally took place to be able to draw a picture of what the garden of Eden looked like with Adam and Eve and the snake and all of that, that would require the equivalent level of Kabbalistic mastery that would take to delve into all those other deeper levels in the rest of the Torah. But so real quick, if, if Nachmanides was potentially either the first one to say this or the first one to popularize it, is it fair to suggest that there's room within Judaism to argue that exact point and that you could argue that this is meant to be taken literally uh could be now again it's it is meant to be taken literally just not the way that we understand it okay all right but this principle that he's suggesting you're asking is there room to argue on that maybe i haven't seen anyone that argued on it overtly so i can't say it's you know if you take some some master that of some other field that said something. I'm like a first semester freshman considering arguing with the professors. Right, uh, that so. we both are. Right, this is we're, we're totally he's out of our league into an incomparable level. So is there room to argue? Maybe <laughs> I don't know. He said it. <laughs> okay. So that's that's one thing. Um, now that's within the written Torah. It's a in the oral Torah, we have all kinds of very interesting stories. And uh, for example, we have a teaching in the oral Torah that Moses was 10 amos tall, which in feet is between 15 to 20 feet. <laughs> right, so what does that it's mean? pretty does it, big. Does it literally mean that he was 15 to 20 feet tall? Don't know. Not clear. There are many other examples like that. This this part of the oral Torah is called agada, which means stories, uh, sayings, mm. things like that. Some of what's mentioned in the agada is literally true. Some of it isn't, and it is specifically encoded. And in fact, I have over here uh, an English translated introduction to the entire concept of agada, written by the Ramchal himself. And so if you don't mind, maybe I'd can... love to hear it. Okay. I'm not going to read the entire introduction because it's long. I highly recommend seeking out this introduction. If anyone's interested, maybe I can record it in length. But I'm I'm just going to quote one short paragraph within it that I think is relevant to our topic. He says, 
It is also important to know that the sages convey many important esoteric ideas by alluding to them through statements about nature or astronomy. For these statements, they make use of the knowledge taught by scientists and astronomers of their time. The sages' primary interest, however, was not in the scientific matter their words ostensibly described, but rather in the esoteric idea to which the sages wished to allude. For that reason, it did not matter whether the science that underlies their statement was accurate or not. Either way, the sages achieved their purpose of camouflaging their esoteric traditions in garb that was popular at that time among the educated. Those same traditions could just as well have been dressed in the science of other generations, and the sage himself would have done so had he made his statement in those other times. Moreover, it is important to know that the sages follow their view that all physical things are controlled by various spiritual forces, and all events in the lower world transpire through the influence of the higher world and conversely the physical events affect the spiritual worlds. One who does not recognize this approach will never be able to understand the ideas of the sages at all. So, what we see from this tradition is that you might find many fantastic statements made in our traditions in the Oral Torah. They're not necessarily meant to be taken literally. Mm. So, it it sounds like from that he's saying, uh, if I could paraphrase a little bit by by dressing these concepts in the garb of the intellectuals of the time they're better able to create parables and it's not the sages intent to say whether or not what those intellectuals believe on their own was true or false but rather this is what you're familiar with so i'm going to draw up analogies based on that right right ultimately your question is when we encounter an idea that seems absurd to the mind, to our mind, what should be our approach? Mm. It's not necessarily that this is literally true and I just don't understand anything about how the world works. It could be that's, that's the wrong approach. The correct approach is I don't understand what this teaching is, in, is intending to get across. Maybe it's literal. Maybe it's hiding some deeper message and it doesn't contradict anything I know. All I know is that I don't understand this and we have to become comfortable with ignorance and not just assume that this, everything has to fit into my current framework of understanding. Okay. The, I, I keep thinking about the, the Genesis narrative. Mm. Um, you can read the first five chapters of Genesis or, or Bereshit. I believe, right? Sure. Um, and you will uncover new pieces every single time. Uh, I don't know how many times I've read through the book of Genesis. Uh, it is There's an unbelievable amount of depth to it. And I still would not say with any degree of confidence that I know how to interpret any of it. Uh, it's It's really incredible. At this point then, I feel like all of my doubts or my questions have been pretty thoroughly answered. It's not that or it's not that I know the truth about about everything now and I'm just enlightened and I'm going to go ascend. Uh, but I think I have a better foundation for how to approach new information that I receive. And and it looks like the approach I'd been using was not entirely wrong, which is just generally if I encounter something that seems fantastical to first check my assumptions and assume that maybe I don't know everything. Right. 
in terms of searching for clarity, expecting clarity, the most we can hope for is a clarity and approach. How do I move forward? Do I have a structured way of learning new information and internalizing it? And that's, that's all we can ask for because to expect clarity of the bigger picture is uh, hmm. that's an endless pursuit. Yeah, you're asking for a lot there. Thank you, Rabbi. My pleasure. Till next time.